0: And um, so, let's, uh, you, you want to say a number of different things. The Ecclesiastes is a Christian book. It's not just a Jewish book. And that's why we have been to argue through the weekend that, it, you know, unlike that commentator who says the middle order biographical bit is unorthodox, we want to say that the whole thing is orthodox, okay? What we, I think we also want to avoid is a really wooden Christology, a really wooden way of going to Jesus, which is look at all the, look at all the futility and vanity of life come to Christ and you will have meaning and purpose that is gloriously true of course isn't it, but it's not the way it's not what Ecclesiastes is saying I think that's in that idea of under the sun and above the sun That come come to Christ I I, I was telling some folks about a chap that we've got in church who for different reasons he would say the same thing as Rosario Butterfield that when I came to Christ my life my life was fine until I met Jesus, and now now it is a train wreck. Um, so, whatever we do with Jesus' Ecclesiastes, it has to reflect that reality that coming to Christ might cause you more pain than not having met him, even as you now find that the pain is worth it because you find meaning in life. Um, so, my way of thinking about Ecclesiastes and Jesus is not so much ever in preaching it, the way you sometimes hear in sermons, you get... Sermon that moves through moves through the Old Testament passage, and then at the end of the sermon there's a kind of hey presto moment, look, this is actually all about Jesus, but Jesus fulfills this or but you you can do you can you can do that of course, but I don't think that's the best way to do it from Ecclesiastes. The way I've tried to do it, and it, I've probably done it more in the book than I have in the talks, is, is to say that the teaching of, of Christ is not different from the teaching of Ecclesiastes. When I preached the sermons and tried to show Christ in Ecclesiastes, it was to say that Christ is the even greater teacher of the wisdom that you find in Ecclesiastes. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, oh, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, the tears of the oppressed. And, you know, I saw that sometimes the world is so awful that you can't look at it anymore. And then he says, Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. I saw that all toil and all skill that happened in work come from a man's envy of his neighbour. The world, the world is bleak and awful sometimes and the reason it's being awful is that we do not love our neighbour fully and properly. Okay, what did Moses preach to the people as they were about to enter the promised land? Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself? Um, Jesus is teaching, the book of Ecclesiastes takes what Moses preached to the people of Israel and said, can you see how true that is? If you love God and love your neighbor, all will be well. If you love God and if you don't love God, you won't love your neighbor, and if you don't love your neighbor, you will envy your neighbor and you will your neighbor and destroy your neighbor. Life works as best as it possibly can when you love God and love others. That's in Ecclesiastes, that's in the law of Moses, and that's what Jesus says. So in one of the chapters in my book, Ecclesiastes, rather than finishing with Jesus as a climax chapter, I start with Jesus to say G- Jesus speaks the same language of Ecclesiastes. The, the, so that's one way of doing it. There's lots and lots of Jesus's teaching that is just like Ecclesiastes. There are only two ways to live. There's a broad, two. There's a broad road, broad road. There's a narrow road. There's heaven. There's hell. There's these. I mean, wisdom teaching. There's these kind of just stark. If you're gonna die. Do something with your life. There's this kind of stark parallel between the two things. You get Jesus saying, "Look, okay, you Luke chapter twelve by the wise man who." build barns? Uh, the foolish man who made, made his money so i have got to build even more barns and tear them down and he dies. You you fool, you did not know that this very night your soul would be asked of you. What does it profit to gain the whole world and, and lose your soul? That That's Ecclesiastes isn't it? You don't know when you're going to die so why why build more for yourself rather than giving it away? Um, I, I think another big parallel is the is another main way of handling um, the connection is the eating language, isn't it? Eating and drinking. Um, let me read you this bit if I can find it here. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's not that Jesus taught future feasting only. Okay, so Jesus Teaches that the kingdom of God is going to be like a wedding banquet, doesn't it? It's going to involve food and drink. It's not that he taught future preaching only. In, in David Ford's memorable phrase, Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. The sheer number of times Jesus and food are mentioned together is quite staggering. And the reason is that he is the ultimate teacher, the true wise man. He is the embodiment and fulfilment of the vision of life that the teacher in Ecclesiastes has been holding out to us. God's good world is there to be enjoyed in relationship with others. And we eat and drink together now in anticipation of our feasting together then. Every meal is a foretaste and appetizer for the banquet that is yet to come. So, I think you preach Christ from Ecclesiastes by showing that Jesus does what the text tells us to do. Go eat your bread with joy. What's Jesus' first miracle? It's the turning of water into wine in it? It's, he, he he is bringing to earth that future messianic wedding banquet and saying, you can actually begin it now. Yeah. Does
1: that scratch that particular edge, maybe? I think it's a beautiful Yeah. Um talking about meals and uh, banquets and drinks there and uh, we'll give a couple of questions uh, Since moving to Scotland, did you find a significant cultural difference when it comes to alcohol? Uh, example, having a glass of wine with dinner than with living in Northern Ireland uh, and then is there a line between legalism and being wise with this? And the last question is easy to answer
2: um,
1: Yes, there's
0: always a line, isn't there? There's always a line that you can cross and end up on the wrong side of it. Um, so, like, like, like anything else, like everything, it, every sin is parasitic, isn't it? Off the good, every everything we do wrong is a perversion of the good thing. Um, theologians have said all through centuries: sin itself doesn't act. Sin isn't actually a thing in itself. It doesn't have an independent existence. Sin takes, takes what is good. Adam and Eve reaching for the tree the knowledge of good and evil was a perversion of what they should have done, which was eating from every other tree. Okay, So everything good has a... Every sin is parasitically good. When things go badly wrong in the world... With something like alcohol. Christian people, we now flip it the other way. So we rightly want to refrain from those things. We rightly say drunkenness is wrong and alcohol is dangerous and we need to put barriers around it. But we end up going so far the other way, don't we, that the protection that we put in place around the wrong thing, it's what the Pharisees do with the law, isn't it? The law says don't do this. And the Pharisees say, well, to make sure we don't do that, Let's put ten hedges before that one that you don't do either. And all you need is a I mean, think what we've been like the last couple of years with mask mandates. Like mean, four years ago, if somebody said you're gonna to have to wear a mask in church, you would have been like, No, no, that's ridiculous. Fast forward four years later and say we're gonna take masks out of church, and all of a sudden people are like, No, 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 that's ridiculous. Like you you you, you put these extra rules and laws in place that over time those things become sacrosanct, don't they? Um And Christian cultures, and Northern Ireland has it in particular, but many other cultures have it too, that the good laws that we put in place to shield ourselves from the things the Bible says are wrong, drunkenness we do have to be really careful with those extra laws, that those laws are not the gospel. The Bible is really clear, isn't it? Proverbs, wine gladdens the heart of man, and the next part of verse doesn't say, and that's a really bad thing. Say, no, wine gladdens the heart of man, It's, it's... Jesus did not change water into, um, you know, Ribena. It's, it's mm-hmm. wine, it's the best wine. It's, it's what will be there at the end. Um, and I don't know what was the question? Just um, <laughs> a So, so n- if you don't drink alcohol, okay, if you don't drink alcohol, that is, that, that is your choice and is a could be a really fantastic thing. It could be a fantastic witness, it could preserve your life, it could help people around you. Okay? And if you are a Christian and you don't drink alcohol, and you have a problem with Christians, you drink alcohol, you're the one with the problem. Okay, that, that that's part of the Bible's perspective, isn't it? It's handling the choices you make for gospel winsomeness, handling it knowing that it's not a gospel issue. Um, and, and knowing, knowing the human heart, knowing what we're like, but they thought, do you know the story of, it's not about alcohol, it's about the Sabbath, the young couple on honeymoon on the Isle of Skye, and they're on honeymoon, and they've got, one afternoon, they, they see this boat tied, tethered up at this beautiful lock, and they think we're going to take the boat out on the lock. So they un, un, they're untying the boat. And um, they get back to get in the boat, and they hear this voice behind them. They hear this woman that they didn't see was sitting, this woman said, where do you think you're going? and they said, well, it's lovely afternoon, we thought we just take this boat out and we'll bring it back. And she says, but it's the Sabbath. And they say, yeah, I know, but, you know, didn't Jesus feed his disciples on the Sabbath? He walked through the field and they gave them praying, and she said, aye, but not in the outer of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we can be like that, can't we? We have Christian cultures that we build up that become really, really precious to us do not transgress the boundaries of our Christian culture. Um, we've just got to keep an eye on that, we've got to watch that. So the first part of the question, did I notice a cultural difference?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Aberdeen's very, like Scotland like Northern Ireland in lots of ways. Northern Ireland is still much more Christian than than, um, than, than Scotland is. But I, I didn't see a huge cultural difference moving from, moving to Aberdeen. The biggest cultural difference was moving from Belfast to, to England. English Christians are far more gone than um, Scottish Christians. So it was it, it was the encountering wine and alcohol when I was a student and in London where we lived for five years. Um, and if, if you're not used to Christians having a drink, of wine, it just is a shock. It <coughs> is a yeah. I do But I think
2: there's
1: an important thing you touched on there about like the problem of alcoholism is. Scripture clearly does condemn drunkenness, yeah. but then trying to protect from that, and the common thing that you know, I've heard is, well, don't drink, do you know, just in case you're going to taste don't, yeah. don't drink anything at all, just yeah. in case you are drunk. But you know, in some ways, you could say, well, don't eat lunch today, just in case yeah. you don't yeah. eat anything in case you're given over to gluttony. Yeah. And there's another. Just I, add one up bit.
0: John Piper was recently, just a couple of weeks ago, at T4G, the last big gathering in Kentucky, all these churches together. And he, he, separately, he and Sinclair Ferguson were both interviewed about reflections on 50 years in ministry. And John Piper has a couple of amazing stories in his early days of Bethlehem Baptist Church. Some of the things that he did, um, you know, he thinks were just totally stupid things. And then amazingly, he's telling you these things, and you're listening to him, you think, that is really stuff. Really stupid thing. And then he says, but I'll do it again. I'll do it again. One of the things um, that he he said, this is a a stupid thing, he said, when he first went to Bethlehem Baptist, the first battle that he fought, or one of the first battles, was a part of the church constitution that you must not drink alcohol. So to be a member of the church or involved in that church, you must not ever. Piper says, I am a lifelong teetotaler. I do not drink alcohol, and I had to get rid of that clause. And he said, that was a line in the sand as a teetotaler saying it is wrong to have a clause in our church constitution saying you must not drink alcohol. He said, that was worth shedding blood over. He said, because that is the Galatian heresy, that I cannot eat or drink with certain people unless you eat and drink in the way that I do. I thought that's really quite powerful, isn't it? That's not—that's not a pro-alcohol person changing the constitution to suit his preference for drink. It's quite amazing to have someone who has remained teetotal for their entire life, making sure that the church is not a committed church for the sake of the gospel, so that that cultural distinction doesn't um, become more important than the gospel.
1: on the topic I'm reminded of your brother's story he told growing up, really, um, where, uh, about alcohol. And um, he told us, you know, what about, you know, says, take a little wine for your stomach. Someone asking in the teetotaler, the person who said you're not allowed, and he said, ah, but he didn't say whether you were to rub it on or to drink it. <laughs> 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 All right. I don't know what I'm following on from this uh, question uh, on alcohol and wisdom, and that uh, what is your favourite wine and your favourite beer? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going
0: upset I like red wine, I like Pinot uh, Noir red wine, and um, favourite beer. Is this recorded? <laughs> <laughs> Mine and beer are okay, but it. it's the, the real heavenly nectar is whiskey.
1: It's <laughs> real, real stuff. TV or...? It's very deeply, yeah. 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 Right, right. Yeah. Uh, moving on. Uh, more practical things. Any practical advice for those who work? Shift patterns on how to build in routines and rhythms? Maybe relevant to what you were saying, last night, about the sense of repetitiveness of life and how to yeah. be good and yeah, I think maybe whether you work with doctors or nurses or all sorts of shifts and, and batteries of nights, rights and you know, why they make sense of how and how and how and so. yeah, that and Yeah, that's a really
0: good question. It's all very well me saying these people in church who are, you know, haven't because 'cause they're always there some days people think like, I would love to be there so but I can't be there. And um, I, I think like everything else, it's your heart disposition you we, you, you can be there every Sunday and still lose your family because you're just it's just legalistic attendance on Sunday and you're not teaching the gospel to your kids at home. Your simple church attendance, unbreakably, doesn't guarantee anything, doesn't form anything. It's your heart attitude that, I'm at church, I'm, I'm in an unbreakable rhythm because these things matter to me. And if you're a doctor or a nurse or someone else in shift work, they, that is a real problem for you. That's really difficult to uh, have rhythm and pattern and yet at the same time you, you probably can find a different rhythm you can find a different pattern if you're a working shift and it means you miss church on Sunday see if you can find a way of nevertheless putting in something every week that is time off is, is time with the Lord and time with his people in some form you know see, see if you can discover it in some way um, I, if possible I would say try not to make it for the rest of your life Often shift work can come in particular seasons of being a junior doctor. Um, with the consultants we have in church have much more stable life pattern than the junior doctors do, although even there I know they have to still do on colds and all the rest of it. But I, I, don't, I don't think a, a long-term life pattern of shift work can be quite hard to maintain forever. If, if possible, if you can, don't do it forever. And here's my main thing I would say, that if you're a parent with children and you're noted, beginning to notice that your shift work pattern means you're never at church with them and therefore they're not really at church with you, mm-hmm. I would say, despite what you're being paid, it's time for a new job. Because your children... Being at church with you regularly matters more than anything else, and I have seen that as well over the years. I've seen where I've seen some doctors have been able to manage their shift pattern in a way that they are at church with their kids. I've seen others not be able to do that, and there are there are nearly always consequences. There there is often so that that is a really difficult thing. It's easy for me to sit here and say, and I hope if you're like that, you that's your shift, I hope you've got a sympathetic and a wise. Pastor and wise counsel to just try and tease some of that out. Um, I think if you if you're aware of it as a problem, you'll you'll find a potentially workable solution. Many people aren't aware of it as just carry it. This is what we do, and they expect life to follow behind working well. But if you're aware that this could be a problem for me, could be a problem for my family, you, you'll probably be able to find some way of working it out. But if after five years you're you're seeing, oh, this is actually having a Negative
1: impact. You might need to think carefully about whether it's sustainable, I think. Um, i relating to, you're talking about children and families. Um, Proverbs 22:6 uh, Train not a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. How should we understand this wisdom, particularly with regards to those who have grown up in a Christian home and walked away? Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um,
0: so the thing to understand about proverbs, I think, is that pro- proverbs isn't proverbs aren't case law. So every proverb that you get. Um, with, you know, I've just opened it. a random frame. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Um, Proverbs doesn't mean that nine, 100% of the time that will always happen. It's Ecclesiastes 9, isn't it? Time and chance happen to all. Time and happenings happen to all. You ca- and, and Ecclesiastes 7 says this specifically about wisdom, that even wisdom doesn't tell you everything you need to know about life you can be the wisest person in the world and you're still going to be left scratching your head about things living life wisely according to God's holy law doesn't guarantee that in every single circumstance this is going to be the outcome um, and, and <clears throat> that, that, so that verse about children okay, parents say well look, we did all this and our children walked away I don't think you can say, I don't think I could sit here and say, well, here, here's why that happened, without knowing the parents and the children. And <coughs> because there's not a blanket there's not a blanket answer to that. There are some parents who say, tra-, you know, that proverb says, train the child up in the way that he's old, he will not depart from it. We did it, it hasn't worked. There are some parents to which a wise pastor will say, yeah, but I need to talk to you about i tell you what I saw as you were training the child, that there are problems in the way that you did that. There are some parents who say that to you, and the only right response is to say, God himself is a father who says to Israel his unfaithful children, what more could I have done for you? It's in the book of Isaiah. It's what God literally says. What more could I have done for you? If, if even the most perfect of fathers, God himself, has wayward children, the most perfect of earthly parents are going to have wayward children. Um, so I think my answer to that is that I would want to know as a pastor who I'm speaking to here. Am I speaking to a broken parent who, who has done everything right? And is heartbroken or am I speaking to a heartbroken parent who hasn't done everything right and the child has wandered off or am I speaking to a, a parent who's angry at God for not keeping his promise when actually they didn't do what they could have done? You know there's a, there's a, you know what I mean there's a kind of range of ways in which somebody ends up there with their child wandering away and it's not the same response to each to each one and Proverbs says at the same time the majority of times raise a child that this is what happens, Christian parents raise Christian children um, that that can happen as the norm so long as you are raising them training them, Not one of the greatest problems we have in church life is parents who expect the church to do for their child what the parents meant to do wisdom is learned from the father to the son and from Wisdom is learned on the mother's lap, not the youth pastor's lap. So we, we have a youth group, we have Sunday School and youth group at Trinity, and I keep saying to our particular secondary leaders, there is no pressure on what you're doing. You, you're not responsible for these kids, their parents are responsible for them. What you're giving them is a bonus, an hour and a half Sunday night, fun time, age-appropriate study, but you're not there you're not their primary pastor. Their parents are their pastors.
1: Um, yeah. okay, um, how has your study of Ecclesiastes practically changed your life and your family's life and your church's life? Um, there's another one I'll read at the same time. It's pretty much the same. How has your journeying through Ecclesiastes changed you relationally? Mm-hmm. That,
0: that, that's a brilliant question. That is really good. It's no point me being here telling you how this can change your life if I can't tell you how it's changed mine. Um, this is the bit where I can say loads of things because my wife's not here. <laughs> um, you are you're preaching Sunday and um, you catch your wife's eye and all, all she does is she just goes... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> I, I recently preached on Ephesians 5, husbands and wives, and she was she's, she does Sunday school, so she's out on Sunday's other Sunday school, so she was in, that Sunday she was in, and I just didn't look at her once. <laughs> 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 um, so, I, I, how has Ecclesiastes changed my life? I, a number of different things. I would say the first time that we preached it, uh, the only time I ever preached it was 2009, it's what led me to write up the sermons into the book, um, about halfway through the sermon series it kind of clicked for me the message of please ask is it david you're going to die and that's okay and it became a little bit of a mantra for me at home it was like you know talking down as i said i'm I'm actually okay with dying and um i was going away the the tron church in glasgow i went away from aberdeen to do a young adults weekend for them Um, and as i'm going out the door we, 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 had, we had two small kids at the time. Angela said, as she often says in very cheery ways, and we go, don't you dare die. And I was driving, don't you dare die, make sure you come back. And I said to her, um, I'm okay if I die. I'm alright. Um, and it, it, it was a real moment of realising that actually I have reflected on death enough that mm-hmm. the fact of me being dead, I've come to terms with. Um, I'm okay with it. No, Angela's not okay with it, and my kids aren't okay with it, and I'm not okay with Angela. I say the same thing to her all the time. Don't you? No, don't you dare?
1: Um,
0: okay. But it, all Ecclesiastes is saying is your own death you need to worry about. Remember the you know the the third angle on death in Ecclesiastes that death can teach you how to live. It's, it's, it's not absolute, it's the third angle. Death is still a curse. Just like to depart me with Christ can be a blessing and better. Death, death is awful and to lose a dad or a mom with young children or a, a family member, it, 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 it is horrendous, isn't it? So Ecclesiastes does not mean if I lose Angela or any of the children that I won't be shattered and there won't be life-altering grief. But it's my own death that's the key thing. And I think the fact that I've come to terms with my own reality of my death in advance, I think, and this is where I'm glad myself here, is maybe a better father w- willing to spend more time down low with my kids doing what they do than I would otherwise have been. Um, I think it's, made, it's changed what we do with our money. So whenever we get extra money, uh, book royalties or something, um, we, I, I spend it, no, we, I rarely save anything, what we do, they say, let's put it towards a holiday, let's do something that the kids will remember, let's, you know, what's the point to put it away in the bank, it might be dead soon, so let's spend it, or let's give it away, and um, let's do something with it that is going to be life-giving for other people, and for us, and for our family. Um, there's something else I was going to say, because you read the, the question. How's it been? Yeah. How's it been? Life doing for your church, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, this isn't the church bit, but I just think generally, it's just it's helped. It's helped me be okay with less control over things. All ministers are control freaks, um, and that we just I don't know what it is. We just are. Every minister is. Um, you're like you you are too, you You know you are. Um, You haven't found out that you are yet, you will in some way. I don't know, it's just helped helped me be more, I'm not in charge of the universe, I'm not in charge of what happens to Trinity, I'm not in charge of what happens to the world. I can do the work that God has given me to do and sleep. It doesn't mean I don't worry about things or sometimes wake in the night and think about things, but overall In the book of Ecclesiastes, I talk about Michael Horton, an American theologian, says that ministers and ministry people think your job is to build a legacy, and he says it's not. Christ has the legacy. The gospel is the legacy. All I have to do is hand the gospel on to the person who'll come after me, a Trinity. Be faithful until the day when I say, "Over to you now, and you you take it from here." So, not not building a legacy is the big thing. Ecclesiastes has helped me with just simply being faithful. And the thing I've just forgotten, I can't remember it is. Ecclesiastes has helped me see that being an introvert, which I am, an an extreme introvert, introvert, is no excuse for selfishness. Okay, so it's helped help me learn that if you do what the Bible says you should do, which is to give yourself to others, as an extreme introvert, I can have other people in my space when I want to be on my own, and to my amazement, I do not need an ambulance. I, I can live, I can cope, I can carry on, and we think, oh, I'm this type of person, I need this. But please ask these, and the whole Bible says, you are a Christian introvert. And if you lay down your life for other people at the very moment where you want to be on your own, you'll, you'll be all right, you'll survive, and surprising things will grow. Um, so I think a big part of Kisestis is generosity. Give give, give yourself and what you have away in ways that hurt, hurt you, and you'll find more life on the other side of it. I was talking to somebody at the coffee break about this, about, they were talking about their ministry of an, an open home and having people around and the rest of it. In my case, that comes from my wife, who's a much more healthy person. in terms of extrovert balance and the rest of it. Um, and, I, well, I've just, you know, we've been married 21 years. You're not the same, I'm not the same person that she married. It's I was an extreme extro- introvert. now I'm just moved a little bit more. You know, your, your personality changes, it's not fixed. You, you can change over time and when other people get get the gospel better than you do and that they're sharing and generous and glad you you get to be in on that and it changes you and um, that's a long answer um,
1: how can we ask or, or how can we teach uh, to enjoy the meaningless of life to those who suffer starvation
0: How can we teach the meaninglessness about to those who suffer stories? I presume maybe the question means um well I don't know if you have to say if the question should answer the question that is given. Um so I think I think the world says uh, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die of that, the world builds bunkers and barns. If this world is all there is, the world stores, stores. It's what the rich man does in Luke 12, isn't it? He stores things up. The, the, The Christian says, because the Bible says, eat, drink and be merry because we're going to die,
2: that eating, drinking and being merry now is a little bit like what we're one day going to do forever. It's not eat, drink, and varies. We don't do that because
0: that's all there is. We eat, drink, and be merry because it's a foretaste of what, of what one day we will do forever perfectly. So the Christian worldview that gets what this world is about and the abundance of all things, the goodness of things, it doesn't build bunkers and barns, it builds schools and hospitals, and it, it throws the doors wide open. It creates open homes, open churches, so the Christian who reads Ecclesiastes and, is, and sees chapter 4, the broken awfulness of the world, does something about it. The, the Christian gives them money to feed the bird, starts a charity to feed the bird, does something actively about it. The, 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 the Christian never says, oh, well, that's just the way the world is, and that's, it's all feeding. Um so when you, when you see the fleetingness of life and the fact that some people have nothing, do something, do something about it. Give your money, give your time, do something to help with
1: it. Um, yeah, does that help? Does that help? Yeah. Three more questions. Uh, time for lunch. Uh, if someone is struggling with meaninglessness, and feels that life is not worth living, would you point to them to Ecclesiastes, or what scripture would you give them a the pastoral care capacity? Um, I'm
0: going gonna, I'm gonna to pop out of that question by saying I just think it all depends. I just don't even this just described like that as a bare statement i think it depend. I don't know. Um, could could somebody who says, I think life is meaningless, could Ecclesiastes help them? Yes. hundred percent. It could be the, the very book that they need to read is the book that says everything's meaningless. But it just depends, it depends it depends who they are, what why they're saying that, what has happened to make them feel like that. Because that, that person could be in serious, serious, have a serious mental health problem that needs very professional help. That person might need a slap. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
0: just get on, you know. You know what I mean? Um, and certain passages that can be life-giving for some, the same passage can be crushing for other people. Um, administered without awareness of context. Um, but. Uh, you know, I, ho- I hope it's clear. my overall idea is that the word doesn't mean meaning- meaninglessness, it means fleeting grief. That's what I mean by a slap. It might mean this person needs to know you may not be feeling great today, but you're not going to be here for very long, so don't waste your life feeling, you know, get on and do something. But that may not be where someone else's conception of meaningless might be very, um,
1: How do we identify and name our season of life while we are in it, and how do we wisely discern what the limits of that season are? That's a lovely question, that's really thoughtful.
0: Um, Read read it again.
1: (laughs) How do we identify and name? I think it's name, our season of life while we are in it, and how do we wisely discern what the limits of that
0: season are? How do we name and identify our season while we're in it, how do we identify its limits? Um, I, I, that's such a good question. I don't know. Um, I, there's a saying, isn't there, that you, you never know that you're happy. You only remember that you were. Isn't that true that you look back at a particular time and you know, I was happy then? Often that's a bit warped. It's nostalgia. And that time wasn't quite as happy as you think it was. But it, it is really hard to know what season you're in. But you tend to know when you're not in one of those seasons. A relationship goes wrong. You're immersed in really painful conflict. You know you're in the. You know. You know you're in that season, but. Before that happened, you look back and think, Oh, it was actually that was really good, that was a happy time of life. Um, Zach, there's a book in the book sold Zach by Zach Eswine called Recovering Eden. That is his meditations on Ecclesiastes, and it's a bit a bit more like this weekend has been a bit more thematic. And that is a stunningly beautiful book, Zach Eswine. If you haven't if you haven't read any of his stuff, he's got a lovely book called The Imperfect Pastor. And this one, on his reflections on Eden. If you want to read something else in Ecclesiastes, I would really recommend that book. And he has a phrase in there that he says, most of our frustrations in life arise from our blindness to the change of season that's just taken place. So if something is really annoying you in life, it is possible that you've moved into a new season and you haven't noticed you're in it. So he says it's like um, the heating in your house. when do you turn it off? You, you turn it off and then oh, it's actually cold again, or all of a sudden you realise you've still got the heating on and you don't need it anymore, and your wife's telling you, why is it roasting? You know, you've moved into a new season, you, know, you, 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 you go out somewhere and you forgot to bring a jumper and a because you thought it was still summer, and all of a sudden you realise it's... So it, it may be... The, the, only, the main way you may know you're in a new season is it is look at what's frustrating you, why are you angry? Why are you upset? It might be because God has moved you to a new point and you haven't quite realised it yet. You might be able to tell your season from your frustrations a bit more than anything else. Um, one of the things I tried to say in the book on chapter 3 chapter three, is that if you know, you know there's a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to weep and a time to laugh, if you know that that wedding that you're at that is a a cracking day out and the dancing is brilliant and you're having a great time if you know that because that day is so beautiful it will be part of the pain one day at a funeral you can prepare yourself a little bit more for the sad season and it will help you enjoy the happy season a little bit more um, is it CS Lewis who says part of the uh, what way around is he, is he doing? Part of the happiness now, the happiness, the happiness now, is part of the pain then. It's in his autobiography about uh, getting married to Joy, and losing Joy. The the, the the reason this is so the reason this is so painful in loss is because being together was so beautiful. Part of the happiness now is that the happiness now is part of the pain then if you know there are uh, there are different seasons coming that this season you're in intense happiness is not going to be there forever if you, you can enjoy it more and you can you can prepare for it a little bit more you, can, you will stop taking people for granted as much um that's probably often the best I can do in a lot of the seasons
1: Last question. Uh, how do you know when you are content where God has placed your life or when you are becoming complacent slash lazy? And are there any practical the signs of things to look out for? Okay.
0: How do you know you're content? How do you know you're content?
1: Any questions?
0: again you probably need wise friends around you to help you a little bit with um, I think it's part of human contentment is very hard to know you've arrived at it because you're all, we're always looking at the grass is greener or do you always say that church would be easier to pastor, that person would be better, that job would be better, I don't know um, there's living with that as a kind of core part of being human there are times when that eats away at you so much that you think maybe it is time for a change or a do you probably just need counsel and help there at that particular point um, I, I on the laziest thing I think we all know when we're being lazy don't we, most of us well, maybe not, maybe we need help but um, we, all, we all know at the end of the day whether we've done what we should be doing or being on Facebook all day a Um yeah. I don't know. Get married if you can, find someone who'll say to you, like, that's enough sun, so get out of bed. <laughs> get in bed. Um, yeah. I think I think men are more lazy than women, generally. I think women, women work harder, I think. <coughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We're a more of a lordy. I like him to come to this weekend. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, it's good to see man. <laughs> <laughs> In g-
0: gaming, right? If you're a Christian, you should not be a so you, should, you could be a professional gamer, make money, could do your job. But if, if you're a Christian and you're 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 gaming twenty four seven, is something wrong? Is there? And men are more likely to be that than women, but not always. Could be mixed. But um, but it, it's why it's why Proverbs, a father to his son, do not be a sluggard. No. Mark Mark Driscoll before he him to ruin in different ways. He used to talk about in his stage that most men are, are boys who shave. Is his phrase? <laughs> and they just haven't, haven't grown up yet. <coughs> and I, I think mas- masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. That's what it what it means to be a man is to take responsibility and to glean and if you're a man in your 20s and 30s and you're not yet taking responsibility for yourself for, for others you know mm-hmm. it, men need to be told to do that it's why the father in proverbs has so many problems by don't be lazy because left his own devices this boy will be lazy I think that's only I mean about men. Boys seem to choose the easier option, more easily. I see it with my, my four kids at home. And they're, they're all addicted to screens. They all want to be on iPad and TV. But there's something a bit more with the boys. And unless you push them, that's what they'll do. Whereas my daughters will be kind of, I'm going to go and see someone, so I'm going to go and see a friend today. But there's something in it to masculinity gone wrong that chooses the path of least resistance, most of the time. Men do that naturally, and here's the flip—the flip side of it is: Why is Jordan Peterson got such a big following? Because men are looking for a strong figure, aren't they? Looking for somebody to say, "Don't waste your life." And um, you know.
1: Any final questions? I <coughs> will bring this uh, to who's going to take a question from. Just uh, to, to the record, the recording, looking the you put it through this.
2: Uh, would you mind having heard from you this weekend the an extreme end of the scale that we don't normally hear, <laughs> I reckon? And you can have me ask this question because I don't have a fully from Could we hear from you, with your review on these essays, the other end of the scale where don't spend your life focused on just the worldly things and not that you your gifts God's and all that. Could we hear you um, give us an exhortation Along, on the other end of the scale as well. Does that make sense? What, what, what is the other end of the scale? Um, being god As long as nobody here at Ecclesiastes and um, is then too focused on just the gifts that God has given us. Well, maybe that's... Think, I'm not sure you're saying properly. Um, it's too focused on the good things God has given us and isn't then um, fair enough in evangelism or beliefs are forgiving or, or other other aspects. So yeah, that's another great question, thank you. Um,
0: so if, if if you hear me as saying, you go away from this weekend thinking, Ecclesiastes is at one end of the scale an extreme end, and we need to balance it with the opposite end of the scale. That's why it's such a good question. I've failed in giving you Ecclesiastes, okay? But I totally understand, it's such a good question, I totally understand why you're phrasing it that way. It's, Ecclesiastes is not an extreme end that needs to be balanced with an opposite end of you know, Enjoy this good world, but don't get so fixated on it that you forget the opposite end of the spectrum of banditism. It's not, they're not opposite extremes. They are just different threads of the full Christian life that we need to hold together. Um, because because Cle- as Ecclesiastes says, go, and eat your bread, drink your wine, enjoy life with your wife through your love all your days. But it also says that it's the same writer saying, fear God and keep his commandments. So there is no commandment of God or the Lord Jesus in the Bible that you shouldn't also be doing. You you should be doing evangelism twenty four seven in all the ways that you can and all the means that you can, um, and you should be looking at make make you know if you're young and you're fit make sure you're at the gym as well. Like do do something. Look after your body. Be clothed in white and um, don't don't. We're really bad at holding different things together, aren't we? We love absolutizing one strand and saying this is it, this is the deal, and this is, you know. Um, <coughs> does that help a little bit? It's, Thank you. It's um, and someone, someone, maybe your brother. Yes, we were talking about over lunch. Um. But, you know, evangelism mm-hmm. and so on, what, what does evangelism look like in the life of And I said, I think we will struggle to reach people with the gospel in our day and age unless we're entertained with them. Um, Open airs, gospel meetings in the Brethren that I grew up with, the Sunday evening gospel meeting, um, certainly that last one, the gospel meeting, has just been declining for generations, hasn't it? Even when I was at Brooklyn in, in the late 80s, early 90s, there were... Any Very few non-Christian people ever came to a gospel meeting. Open air preaching there's a really good. Church in Aberdeen that does open air preaching out the streets. I think it's going to connect with very few people. Doesn't mean it's, it's. I think it's a great thing to be doing. Um. But we all know the dif- the, dif- the difference between opening your home and having people in. It's why Alpha and Christian Explorer hit on this idea of a meal with a course and getting people into that. Um, So you you can take Ecclesiastes' worldview and add it. I I I wanted to say don't don't put it at the opposite extreme of what you're doing. Add it into what you're doing and find ways of doing evangelism that are really world-affirming with people. Um, So, controversial in Northern Ireland as it's recorded, but the event I went to speak at in Dallas, I'll tell you about being there a few days ago, was an event called Whiskey and Wisdom so it was a dinner centered around five different types of whiskey with five short talks from the book of Ecclesiastes on wisdom and it was centered around whiskey because it was a group of businessmen who were running a weekly evangelistic discussion group called Whiskey and Wisdom where they have whiskey together and discuss a proverb, and it started to grow. Non-Christian guys were coming into it, so they let us do a dinner. And they put all this amazing, really thoughtfully put together event. You don't have to drink whiskey. Don't say that, please. It's, do something relational that's with people that shows them that you're not, you're not, you're not just a physical husk here waiting for a ticket to the spiritual afterlife. Like, we should be saying, look at this beautiful world God's given us. I love this world more than you do, because God, I know who made it. I know who gave it to us. Um, yeah.
1: Is that all right? Is that useful? Dan. question? Just on that, the, a couple of books might be helpful. Uh, the Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosario Butterfield, who David's mentioned already uh through the weekend and there's all a meeting of jesus which it sounds like i think you've read as well i haven't well. read that, but read the a Butterfield one yet. Yeah. okay yeah. um there's this idea of jesus and Luke's gospel he's always waiting and they will have anyone else and uh, leaving so it, it's quite helpful question and then this is the last question yeah, yeah. because <laughs> times coming it was just prompted by the last answer but
0: also, and also it seemed to have been a little bit of a recurring theme with some of your answers about the centrality of meals what, if any, is the connection between meals in our lives evangelistically, with family, with fellow believers in church, those actual meals, and our theology and practice, if any, of the Lord's Supper in church, is there, or should there be some sort of deep connection between those? So the 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 Lord's Supper shows a number of different things, and it shows that we're shows that we're united to each other so you, then, there's a symbolism of breaking bread, one loaf we, we eat the one to show that we're part of the one and um, and just just like you, you put bread in your mouth and wine in your body and it becomes part of you you are, you are that close to Christ that is how close you are to him, that that that's how he nourishes you and feeds you, that you're actually in him and he in you, so there's a kind of, that's what's happening in the Lord's Supper. (coughs) Is that connected to what we're doing with our meals and eating together? I don't actually know. It's fellowship, isn't it? The Lord's Supper is known as a fellowship meal. And I, the best I can say okay, is food, food just creates fellowship somehow, doesn't it? Food breaks down barriers. Food is a way of welcoming. Food is a way of... Um, the, 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 the ultimate theology of food, drink and water, Jesus saying, I'm the bread from heaven and I'm the water of life. The theology of food is that food is there to teach you every day that you need something outside yourself to survive. Food is God's little classroom of daily dependence. It teaches us that, just like I need to plug my phone in, I need to be plugged in. I need something from outside myself to sustain me. Um, So there's a kind of, there there is a kind of gospel lesson in food, is that every time you sit down to eat, it's God saying to you, you, do you remember, again, you're a creature? You need me. It's why Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life and the water of life. You need something from outside you to sustain you. Um, and I don't know, I think that's where food can be a really helpful gospel lesson people. We're eating together to show our dependence on God. And you can do that evangelistically to show people that. I haven't answered your question at all. Um, have? Yeah. So I I don't know if there's, I I need to think about whether there's a connection between food and water supper like that.